I want you to picture this. It's Christmas morning, and we are in the home of a young dynamo named Timmy. He just woke up, and he is running, coming from his room to the living room, and under the tree, there he was, a beautiful wrapped present with his name on it. It was so quickly that he almost ran over the family zoo, the dog, the cat, and the hafter named Speedy Gonzalez. He get to the present, he grab him, and imagine this dynamo that embody five shots of coffee together with whipped cream, and is opening that present only to discover that what was inside was a box full of socks. Cozy, plain, everyday socks. Not what he was expecting. Not what he was asking for in that letter that he sent to the North Pole. But he was an enthusiast. And from the top of his lungs, he yelled saying, this is the best present I ever received. And to the surprise of everybody, these words really make us think in something really important. We know that receiving a box full of socks are hardly ever called the greatest gift ever. I mean, I've been there. I know. Even if that was a socks for Iron Man and Captain America and all the Marvel characters. But Timmy's over-the-top happiness revealed a very vital point for all of us today. Even the simplest news can be the greatest news if it touches your heart in the right way. Even the simplest news can be the greatest news if it touches your heart in the right way. But what, I, what if I told you that there is news so magnificent, so transformational, that will make Timmy's socks look like the last week's stale tacos that you have in the fridge? And hungry too. Friends, there are news that we can find on this wonderful letter to the Romans, the book of Romans. It was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in Corinth, planting some churches and training some of the leaders. And he was longing for visiting that new church in that part of the world that he wanted to visit. That was his aim. But he never been there. He didn't plant it. He was just longing to visit. And he wrote this letter, not to correct any theology, but actually to present the best news ever that they could receive, which is the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans has been called the constitution of the Christian because as we're going to study today, it's remarkable what this book has so much doctrine, but at the same time, so much practicality that we need not to miss. So don't be afraid. I will do the best that I can, not only to teach you content for your head, but actually to digest some of the content for your heart 
So you can see this book in a wonderful way, in a practical way, so we can practice it every single day of our lives. It's so much. Just leave that to me and my sleepless nights, but I'm going to bring to you every weekend and the people who are going to be preaching that, a practical Bible study in the book of Romans. The central idea of this message today is this. The gospel transforms us into devoted servants with a divine calling, universal mission, and enduring hope. That's the central idea. The gospel, the good news, transforms us into devoted, devoted servants with a divine calling, with a universal mission, and an enduring hope. So grab your Bibles and open your app or your Bible, whatever you have handy. And if you have your uh, device and you're going to open your Bible in your telephone or in your tablet, just don't text Timmy and telling you about your own socks box saga. But as we examine these verses, keep your hearts open. Open to the transformative power of God's word. It's going to be four different points that we're going to study this morning. We're going to talk about the men, understanding how the gospel uniquely and individually can transform us. We're going to talk about the ministry, unveiling the divine calling each one of us has received from God. And as a result of that transformation that we have through the gospel. Third, the mission, acknowledging our universal responsibility to spread the gospel locally and globally. And lastly, the message. Embracing the hopeful news we share which substantiates why the gospel is indeed the greatest news we ever heard. So we're going to be talking about the men, the ministry, the mission, and the message. So let's unpack this wonderful gift, this celestial package that was sent to us from heaven. And it's time to dive in in this new series that we start today, the book of Romans, chapter 1. Let me start with the first point as we read these verses and give you a little bit of the background. The first point is the gospel is the greatest news because of the men, a set-apart servant of God. That's why it's the greatest news, because of a man. The book of Romans has been so transformational in the life of many people, in the lives of many figures in history, by the way. You probably remember one of the fathers of the church named St. Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo. A man once given to a loss and morality. He had an epiphany when he was reading at the age of 32 this wonderful letter from Paul. He get to Romans 13 and he describes this profound moment in this book. How he was changed from inside out. He wrote a wonderful masterpiece called Confessions. And he explained his experience reading Romans in that book. You probably remember Martin Luther. Not the king, Martin Luther, the Protestant monk. Well, in that in 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 that in that occasion, actually, he was a monk from um, from the order of Saint Augustine. He he was struggling, even though he was reading the Bible and trying to understand it. He was not happy with Paul because he couldn't understand this letter 
that he was writing, that he wrote, specifically about the righteousness of God. He was dealing with personal sin, and he was not thinking in which way a righteous God will forgive a sinful man that he was. Until he got to Romans 1.17, and we're going to start the passage today, mentioning about God's justice, God's righteousness, and there was the last phrase of that verse that struck his heart and changed his life. By faith, the just shall live. It was him writing a commentary on the book of Romans that actually changed the life of another character in history, John Wesley, an Englishman that later became the founders of the Methodism. Him and his brother were changed with this letter. In the 18th century, this evangelical leader was feeling like he needed to come to America and share the gospel. But, but he was not feeling in his heart. Then he went back thinking, well, I shared the gospel with them, but I, I don't feel that those news changed me. When he was listening to a preacher preaching on this passage and reading actually the preface of the commentary of Luther, he said that he felt something inside him that warmed his heart, and he was a changed man. He described this experience in his masterpiece, Gateway to Paradise. That's Luther. And he, Wesley and his brother, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, were the ones who had been composing so many hymns and songs as we cannot imagine. The impact of the letter of Romans is not limited to only these historical figures that we know from the history of the church. It has been transforming many people today. Every time that we share the gospel, we normally pick up a few of the verses that we found here in the letter of Romans to pave a way for a person to find salvation, to find Jesus. It changed also the life of the Apostle Paul. When his name was Saul and he was on his way to Damascus and he has an encounter with Jesus Christ himself, he was a changed man. And it was that experience with prompt him to start writing this wonderful book as well. So it is important to understand something as a background. When we read the letters in the New Testament, we just need to be careful about the letters that we normally are, are accustomed to, to write. You know, every time that you write a letter or even a memo or even an email, you start by greeting the person that you're sending the email. If I'm sending an email to someone, say, hi, someone, hi, brother, how are you? And then I explain what I need. And then I sign my name. But in ancient writings, specifically in epistolary writings, is the opposite. First, they put their names. They don't want the person to start wondering. Remember, they were scrolls. They were rolls. They were papyrus. So it's not like a piece of paper that you can easily go to the bottom and see who is signing it. They need to do a lot of work to find who's sending this. So they put the name first. This is Paul. And this is a custom also in many of the letters in the New Testament, except for First John and Hebrews. But in these letters, it follows the, the same pattern. The author, the subject, the recipient, and then the salutation, grace and peace. In this case, in verse 1, we found the author, Paul. The subject is composed with several phrases introducing 
the contents of this letter. And remember, Romans is one letter. Romans is like one sermon. When you read Romans, even though we're going to be studying piece by piece, chapter by chapter, remember, it's a complete letter. So my recommendation to you from now on, when you go back home, including your devotional, reading the letter of Romans from beginning to end, every week, so you can understand where is exactly what we're trying to present in. Because when we take pieces apart, it's when we are actually taking in consideration a lot of heresies. Because we don't put the things together. So imagine this is one letter. And the subject of this letter is the righteousness of God. And we're going to find it here in Romans 16, 1, 16 and 17. And then the recipients is to all of you in Rome who are loved by God. The Christians in Rome, this church that he never visited, they are the recipients. And he greet them. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So he begins this letter identifying himself, showing what is his identity, and looks exactly how he presents himself. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. That's an interesting phrase. What is the difference between bond servant and servant? I'm, I'm new to the English language, so I had to go to the dictionary to find out the answer. And it's interesting because a bond servant, different from servant, a bond servant is somebody who is a slave or somebody else, but he voluntarily submits to that slavery. It's not by force. It's not an obligation. He willingly submits this person to be a servant. So that's a bond servant. That's what I, what I found interesting and very accurate. Because as Christians, we are servants. But we are bond servants of Christ. Voluntarily, we submit to his leadership, to his guidance. Called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He used the word servant in Greek, doulos. So it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the revered Israelites like Moses and Joshua and many other characters, they introduced themselves in the writings as servants or slaves of Yahweh, Jehovah. In turn, Yahweh, God, is calling the nation of Israel his servant. So that's something that appears also in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the word Lord, it reference more with Jesus Christ than even with God the Father. And additionally, the title servant or slave extends beyond the Israelites to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless their ethnic background. If it's a Jew, if it's an un-Jew, or a Gentile, or a Greek. So, the Christians in Rome knew about Paul. Some of them probably met him, because remember, when, they were, when the persecution started, some of the Christians ran away from Jerusalem. And some of them get into that Roman place. Roman capital. And he, they were sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. So there was a church that started. It was not a church. Maybe if Paul was doing the fourth missionary journey, he probably would include Spain and also uh, Rome in that, in that trip. But he didn't plant the church. But he knew about them. That's why he's addressing this letter to them, knowing that there is a group of believers there that only he heard from them 
and he is commanding them. So they don't know about him, but we can understand that he cared for them as he cared for the other churches. It's interesting that Paul is not introducing himself, putting his credentials. He says, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant. I'm not a student of Gamaliel, one of the greatest scholars of our time. I'm not a Roman citizen. I'm not someone who knows the law from beginning to end. He basically recognized that even though he wanted to tell them who he is so they know that he has certain authority, he's introducing himself as a servant. In contrast, he's using another word to balance this concept. He's using the word apostle. It's very uniquely in the Christian language. Apostle means the sent out, the one who has been called to represent somebody. Jesus himself selected this title for his 12. And Paul and, and, and also James adopted this title, even though they were not part of the initial 12, they adopted that title. In many ways, Christ has a different relationship with them. Today, we hear about the school of apostles, the new apostolic era, and a lot of people who you just click on the internet, pay a, a fee of uh, maybe $350, and you receive a title of apostle. It's not the case. These apostles were unique. They had to have a close relationship with Christ. In many ways, they were called and sent by God himself, in this case, by Jesus. The kind of part of the apostles in the Old Testament are the prophets. That's what God was using to communicate his message. So when Paul himself the Christian as a slave, but also as an apostle, he especially is telling them, you know what? I am just somebody who loves God, submit to him, but at the same time, I'm somebody who knows what I'm talking about you. So they didn't know him. He's introducing his credentials. I'm an apostle. I'm one of the 12, even though I'm not in the original 12. I'm probably the 13th. Moreover, the slave term has been applied to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he is also mentioning that he has been set apart. The term served apart in original Greek is a word whose root is the word Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees? Paul was one of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The same word for set apart, it was a Pharisee. When a Pharisee was looking somebody who he didn't know if that was a Jew or not, and they were wearing this uh, prayer shawl, and when they were coming close to him, what they do normally, they cover with a prayer shawl and kind of protect them. They set apart because they didn't want to be contaminated with anybody else. They were so strict. Paul is using the same term. He's using the same word. But instead of meaning set apart, meaning I'm just different, I'm just set apart, I have been chosen, I have been set apart to present the gospel. God chose me. God put me in that situation. In some ways, when we read Galatians, we read that Paul is saying that he, God set him apart from birth and called him to preach to the Gentiles. This echoes with one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 1.5, a verse that is personal to me. 
Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This is who Paul is. However, he goes a step further and is given a particular details of introduction, a deviation from something that, that he can consider is important. Remember, he is talking about Christians who are in Rome. And Rome was the empire who was actually dominating the known world at that time. This self-introduction is telling them, this is who I am, I'm your humble servant, servant of God, but at the same time, I got credentials to show you that I know what I'm talking about. But at the same time, it only confirms that his identity, he immediately shifts from his persona to the person of Christ. In essence, Paul is a writer, but the story, what he's presenting, and the glory belongs to God. And you will see in this letter. So just like Paul, each one of you, each one of us, we are servants of God. We need to see that way. But each one of us, we need to see ourselves as an apostle, not as a new apostolic movement, but as apostles, those who have been called and sent out to share the good news of the gospel, all of us. Number two, the gospel is the greatest news because of the ministry a controlling calling. The ministry. The authority of the gospel resides not on Paul, but on God. Look, verse 2. Set apart for the gospel of God, says verse 1, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's so interesting. This verse, verse 2, is telling us what is exactly the origin of the gospel. It was originated in God. He is the one who promised to send his good news. When God started writing the gospel, right there in Genesis 3, when men and women fell, that's the moment that the Lord announced to them the good news of what happened in the future, when he will send someone who will reestablish the relationship that was broken at that moment. The origin of the gospel is God. He declared that God promised this in this news beforehand. The gospel is not a new message way. It was promised in the Old Testament, beginning with God's interaction with humankind, Adam and Eve. And then it was promised by God through the prophets. We read it over and over. Habakkuk is one. Actually, the quote that we have in, in 117 is a quote from Habakkuk. The, the just shall live by faith. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah certainly preached the gospel in passages like Isaiah 118, Isaiah 53, 55. And the salvation that we enjoy today was promised by the prophets through what they did, even though they didn't fully understand what they were talking about, as we read in 1 Peter 1 and 10. So it was not only prom promised by God, it was promised through the prophet, and it was promised, authenticated by the scriptures. The message of Paul, what he carried, was fulfilled, the hope of salvation foreshadowed from the prophecies, for the prophecies of Moses. So the prophet Isaiah certainly preached the gospel in passages like this. So the scriptures is telling us that Paul carried and passed the ultimate test of truth. He was born out of God's word, and the apostle Paul demonstrated that veracity 
as he was quoting the scriptures in the Old Testament more than 60 times. Salvation in Christ has been God's great plan from the beginning. The essence of the gospel in verse 3 is his son, Jesus Christ. Concerning his son, he says, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. We're talking about humanity of Christ. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It's not that he was declared when he was resurrected. He always has been God's son, as we read in the prophet Daniel. It's just a terminology that they understood it was referring to the Messiah. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. These two verses are packed with important theology. Here's where we have a concentrated the entire theology about God and Christology, the theology of Christ. He's full divine, the son of God, Lord. He's full human, a descendant of David according to the flesh. And this contradicts the Gnosticism of the time for the Romans were immersed. It was only an illusion where they were thinking. So Jesus has to be both human and divine to obtain salvation for all of us. You can have the gospel without Christ, but that gospel will not be the real gospel. Because you cannot have the gospel, the true gospel, without Christ. You know why? Because Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. He personifies the good news. So he identified that. And it's beautiful because the verse 5 and 7 through 7 mentions the inclusiveness of God's plan with the gospel. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are the call of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just for the Jews, but for all who are beloved of God in Rome. The gospel is for non-believers. The gospel is also for believers. It's for non-believers because it brings salvation. It's for, non it's for the believers because it brings sanctification. So the gospel is active no matter what is your position. Excuse me. Having embraced Christ, they're loved by God, so they understand that. So gospel is inclusive. It can transcend. It can reach out. He loved those men and women in that church, and he was telling them about the truth that they need to know and embrace and accept and live and share. And the responsibility that they have to continue what the Lord commanded in Matthew 28, to make disciples of all the nations. Number three, the gospel is the greatest news because of the mission, a consuming commitment that we have with God. Paul's spiritual concern for the church was greatly. He affirmed them. First, I thank you, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, the Roman world. Their faith was known everywhere. Paul is grateful for these Christians in Rome because they have sent gifts not only to help the poor in Jerusalem, but also they were demonstrating that they were real and they were actually sharing the gospel with other people as well. 
He prayed for them, verse 9. For whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, it is my witness as to how incessantly I make mention of you. That's part of the apostolic work of Paul. Preaching and prayer are inseparable. You cannot preach without prayer. You cannot pray without sharing, without teaching, without preaching the gospel. Although he doesn't personally know them, he knows about them. But he knows God, and he knows that they are known by God. And then in verse 10, he expressed his desire to be with them. He wants to be there. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Despite the good testimony, he wanted to be there. He wanted to encourage him personally. He has been in ministry long enough to understand that being a Christian in that time, in that era, was not a, a, an easy thing. He promised to assist them all the time. Thank you so much. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. Paul is not necessarily bestowing spiritual gifts to them. Otherwise, people are taking this out of the context and thinking that a human person can bestow spiritual gifts like we see in some of the revivals in Pentecostal churches. He is saying, in some ways, I just want to make sure that you know that you have a gift. And I want to do whatever I can using my gift in front of you so you can grow, so you can mature, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and I have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. Because he knew that they were having a great ministry. So first he wants to impart some spiritual gift. It's better to understand a spiritual gift that comes from the Spirit but active in their lives. And Paul wants to work among them so he can see some fruit no fruits, no saving souls, but what the Lord is producing in them through the Holy Spirit. So God's compassion is evident through the concern for the spiritual beings. He felt that it's an obligation. He says in verse 14, I'm under an obligation, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. For the Roman people, anybody who didn't speak their language without the accent, imagine me with me, my strong accent, I don't speak English. For imagine you were Romans, I would be a barbarian because you barely can understand what I'm talking about. So maybe not educated. That's the people that Paul is saying. The gospel is for everybody. Those who are well educated, like the ones who are not cultured. Those who are rich, but those who are poor. Those who are among the family of the Jewish people, and those who are Greeks and non-Jewish as well. The gospel is for everybody. He feels an obligation. And an obligation needs to be taken in, those, in two ways. One, Paul is, is, is talking about the word, I'm compelled, I'm obligated to share the gospel. Imagine that you borrow money from the bank and you are obligated to pay the bank the money a certain time. That's normal. You fulfill your obligations. But also, imagine that somebody, like in our cases, when we visit our families back home, somebody decides to send some money to a relative who lives close by and says, do you mind to take this money to my family, my mom who lives very close to where you live? And you get the money and take it. You have obligation. You have obligation with the person who will give you the money, but you have an obligation to the person that you need to give the money to. 
That's exactly what Paul is trying to explain here. I feel an, an obligation. God gave me this good news. I cannot keep it to myself. I have to give it away. The gospel is not private. The gospel is to be shared. You and I, we have an obligation with God because he gave it to us and we are saved through the gospel. But also, he gave it to us so we can give it to someone else. So you cannot escape that obligation. And it's not mandatory. Actually, it's an order. <laughs> but it's not necessarily mandatory. It has to be, like Paul says, with the love that he has for God. I'm under an obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to both the wise and the foolish. And then in verse 15, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And they were believers and they needed the gospel. Those who killed Jesus. Last point, the gospel is the greatest news because of the message, a compelling content that we have. And the last two verses are basically the core, the heart of the entire book of Romans. This is the theme of the entire book of Romans in these two verses. In these two verses, first, to bring about salvation for sinners and to bring about sanctification for the saints. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed. In some ways, implies that at some point, Paul was ashamed of the gospel, but not more. Now that he's a believer, he's no longer ashamed. And not ashamed in the society who was considered a craziness to be sharing the gospel of this Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Have you ever been, feel ashamed about the gospel? At work? At school? You don't want to talk about your God because you're, you're afraid that the person will reject you? Or the person is intolerant? Or the person is agnostic or atheist or maybe a Muslim and you don't want to bother anybody? Paul was not in that case. And the Romans were not having the same religion that he had, even though he was a Roman citizen. He was no longer ashamed. The gospel overcomes the temptation to be ashamed. If we really remind to be believers and trust God all the way, we are too obligated to share the compassionate message of God. So also is to bring sanctification for the saints. For in the righteousness of God, verse 17, is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This righteousness can be viewed as a divine attribute of God, definitely. But also, the just God can impart justice, can impart righteousness to the ones that he loved. He can declare you innocent of all the sins you are committed if you ever trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He can do that because he is just and he will satisfy his justice for what Jesus did on the cross. So those are the greatest news that you can ever hear, that you and I, we can receive forgiveness of our sins, but at the same time, we can receive a new life and that process of sanctification that salvation brings us. God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. For in the death of Christ, God reveals his righteousness by punishing sin. And in the resurrection of Christ, he reveals his righteousness by making salvation available to the believer sinner. 
The problem is, how can a holy God can forgive me? That's what Martin Luther was thinking. And he said, because of the righteousness of God has come in for me. The gospel reveals the righteousness that is by faith. It's by faith, not by behavior, by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. It's when you can see God's righteousness, but also the righteousness that he can impart in you. Imagine wonderful people like uh, Mother Teresa, even though many people say that she was not a believer, but nobody can deny how wonderful lady she was, how sincere she was to care for the needy in India, in Calcutta. Imagine that if you can receive that righteousness in your life. That can be amazing. But what Paul is saying, no, it's not the Mother Teresa. It's not, not even his own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God can be imparted to you if you just believe. And those are excellent news. So the gospel transforms us into devoted servants with a divine calling, universal mission, and enduring hope. In like what, what Paul said, I'm going to give you three action points. Three next steps. First, accept the gospel. Accept the gospel. You, you don't have to rewrite it, rewrite it or reshape it. It's an invitation. You just need to accept that invitation. It's a new life. Paul will expand on all the knowledge that he knows, the effects of the gospel through the letter in Romans. But in order for the good news of Jesus Christ to be great news for us, we need to first accept that as the truth that we need. So accept it. Secondly, leave the gospel. Leaving the gospel means brings, being set apart for the gospel for obedience of faith. Anyone who genuinely comprehends the magnitude of God's gift won't be able to remain idle. If you really understand the gospel, you are not going to remain idle. You are going to stand up today. You're going to go through those doors, and you're going to find an opportunity to share the good news if you really understand what the gospel is all about. If you don't understand it, you just will continue being who you have been so far. So leave the gospel. Accept the gospel. Leave the gospel. And third, share the gospel. Paul considered himself indebted to all humanity because he had been entrusted with a priceless gift. Imagine receiving the cure for the most dangerous cancer. And you keep the cure and you don't share it with anybody. You keep the treatment for yourself, knowing that everybody is dying. That would be the most selfish, inhumane things that you can do. But when we talk about the gospel, we talk about an illness. Sin is an illness. And the only cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have it. Why are you keeping it for yourself? You need to learn it, accept it, embrace it, leave it, and share it. So others can find what you already have. The only reason that I can justify that you are not sharing the gospel is one, you don't understand it. Second, you don't believe it. Because how can you share what you don't believe? But the command is here. The just shall live by faith. May the Lord use this word. And this is just what in our feet and what is coming. So don't miss the next sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us of the greatest news 
that we ever received, that we ever heard. That you sent your son to die on that cross for all of us. He who was with no sin, who was perfect in every way, he made himself a sinner for all of us. Just to take that sin and nail it in that cross. He died. He was buried. And just as the scriptures said, on the third day, he rose himself from the dead. That's the power of the gospel. It does the power that he offers freely by grace to all of us. If we trust him, if we believe in him, if we accept him as, as a savior of our lives, if we, if we learn to follow him as a Lord of our lives, if we submit to him, those good news can become greater news. And those greater news, so many people are dying, wanting to know that there is hope. Thank you for that enduring hope that you're giving us, Father. And now I'm stirring our hearts a desire to understand more about this gospel so we can not only accept it, but live it. And most importantly, start sharing it with those who desperately need it. Let me start with myself, Father. Here I am. Send me. I ask you this in your son's name. And everybody says...